Green Sense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit ceatechn.com to learn more. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense Show, where we bring you eco innovations that are changing your world. Sustainability has been criticized for being only for the affluent, people who can afford to eat organic foods and drive electric cars. To make a sustainable society, it must work for all people of all ages, race, and creed. Our next guest is a champion of change and is using sustainability to alleviate poverty. Here to tell us more is Keenlan Blackwell, a president and founder of the Chicago Eco House. Keenlan, thank you so much for joining us on Green Sense. Yeah, thank you so much, Robert, for uh, having me. Well, you have a fascinating background story. So let's start from the beginning uh, to show how your experience inspired you to found Chicago Eco House. Uh, your grandfather was a sharecropper and was part of the Great Migration, moving from Arkansas to Milwaukee. And uh, uh, he took a factory job. And for those that don't know, sharecroppers are tenant farmers. Uh, they're given land to farm. In return, uh, they give a portion of their crop to the landowner at the end of the year in lieu of payment or rent. So did he share any stories with you about what it was like to be a sharecropper in the South? And yes, he has shared stories. Uh, you know, obviously it wasn't a very good time for him. So most of the stories that he does share are, uh, you know, him kind of going through like, uh, you know, some pretty uh, negative experiences. Like, like, I, like he, for example, he... Uh, he shared like one story where he was like going into town to take his crop to, you know, sell it at market. Um, and, uh, you know, like the, 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 the store uh, owner who was buying the crop uh, basically, you know, gave him a lower price and, you know, like, his, you know, like he wasn't happy with it. Um, but his dad basically just told him to, you know, my great grandfather just basically told him to calm down because, you know, like they didn't want to face any sort of retribution um, you know, because back in those days, like, you know, you pretty much just had to go with whatever, uh, you know, people gave you if you're, a, you know, a black person in the South, uh, you know, if you didn't want to, you know, if you want to try to live your life in, you know, some semblance of peace. So, yeah, like, it's definitely a very painful time for my grandfather, uh, you know, sort of, you know, being a farmer in the Jim Crow South. So uh, that uh, got your parents to migrate to uh, Wisconsin, and eventually they ended up in Madison, and you lived in a dual-income family uh, comfortably. Uh, how did that shape your values? Yeah, so growing up in Madison, you know, I was kind of insulated from a lot of the, you know, I guess like harsh realities that many people face uh, around the world, and definitely, you know, I was insulated from the realities that, you know, many uh, people face in the inner city. Um, you know, so, you know, in terms of, in terms of how it shaped my values, uh, you know, for the most part, like it, uh, uh, you know, really kind of, uh, you know, I, got, you know I, mean, I mean, when I was younger, I was like really kind of a bit more into myself. I, you know, was a little more self-absorbed, like a lot of teenagers were. Uh, my dad actually was the one who really got me into the community service and volunteering. Um, and, you know, he was like, uh, you know, his, he, he would volunteer as a community organizer, you know, in mass and during those days. Uh, so, you know, like when, you know, when I started volunteering um, at a local community center, uh, you know, that really started to like broaden my world that there's like, you know, suffering and, you know, people don't necessarily have it as good as me. Um, so, 
um, you know, like, as like that, I would say it was like the beginning of, you know, my journey of, uh, you know, basically trying to live my life for something uh, greater than myself. And then you took the toughest job you'll ever love. Yeah, after college, you joined the Peace Corps. Remember that slogan? <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, and, uh, I, I took I took that uh, you know hook, line, and sinker. So, <laughs> well, I'm a little envious. I, I I always wanted to join the Peace Corps, and uh, I filled out all the paperwork, but didn't do it. But I did work in the Soviet Union and worked with Peace Corps workers democratizing uh, state-owned factories. So I got a little taste of it. But tell us about your experience and what you learned most. Uh, from working in Thailand as a Peace Corps worker? Yeah, so uh, when I joined the Peace Corps, uh, you know, basically I was like looking to serve my country in some sort of capacity while also getting opportunity to, you know, see the world. Um, but I also wanted to go somewhere that, you know, was as different as the United States and the West as possible. So um, yeah, Thailand's literally on the other side of the world. And, you know, like over there, it's, uh, you know, it's a Buddhist culture, um, you know, not a lot of Westerners, you know, not a lot of people who speak English. I had to learn Thai. Uh, I forgot most of my Thai, um, you know, but like, I think the thing that really uh, shaped, you know, shaped me during that was just sort of seeing the amount of, uh, uh, you know, sort of self-sufficiency from a community standpoint, because, you know, they didn't necessarily have like a lot of the, you know, large government welfare programs that we have in the U.S. or in Europe or that kind of thing. So, you know, really people just leaned on each other. Right. You know, you would see a lot of, uh, you know, farmers and, you know, basket weavers and all these, you know, all these like, you know, sort of local community entrepreneurs like supporting each other. And like when I was in the village, like I was just kind of shocked. I was like, you don't really see like homeless people just wandering around. Right. Because like if someone falls in hard times, like there's someone who's willing to take you in. Because like if you were to fall in hard times, like you would want someone to take you in. Right. So I think like for me, I just began to sort of see. Like, okay, well, you know what, um, government uh, plays a role, but isn't necessarily, you know, a replacement for healthy community relationships. Um, and that, you know, when people, uh, you know, decide to like come together, um, you know, there are like some pretty creative and innovative solutions uh, that can, you know, sort of, you know, matriculate at the, you know, sort of at the bottom and work itself up. Um, so yeah, like that was a very, very formative time uh, in my life. Uh, you know, sort of, you know, the work I did in uh, Thailand. So Keelan, uh, most people that go in the Peace Corps have some kind of specialty. What was your specialty and what did you accomplish out there? Yeah, so I was a community-based organizational de uh, development volunteer. Um, so the project that I worked on was uh, helping uh, farmers with organic fertilizer uh, co-op to be able to open up new markets for them in other provinces around uh, Thailand. So, you know, for me, this was actually my first foray, foray into uh, sustainable business um, and specifically a sustainable business that, uh, you know, had, a, you know, I guess like, you know, a environmental bent to it. Um, you know, so before, before like that project that I was doing in Thailand, I looked at environmentalism more as a public policy, uh, you know, through a public policy lens, because like that's kind of like the way it's talked about, especially like when you're in school and college, like all you hear about is, you know, different like, you know, climate change policies that, you know, to, to try to affect change. Um, but, you know, when I was like sort of working with these farmers and seeing the, the, the benefits that organic fertilizer had compared to like the synthetic, the synthetic chemical fertilizer that they were using and how it was helping them to make, you know, a little bit more money, 
um, and is being done, you know, like in a way that was aiding sustainable uh, community and economic development, it just sort of expanded my uh, worldview that, oh, wait a minute, maybe there's more to environmentalism than just, you know, going to your local state capital and, you know, protesting. Maybe there's actually, maybe we could actually use business as, you know, a, a main driver to really change the world and, um, you know, not only, you know, bring these uh, environmental solutions, but do it in a way that's, you know, alleviating poverty and uplifting people who are living on the margins. One of the challenges of people living overseas for an extended period of time is they have an adjustment period when they come back to the States. <laughs> and uh, after your tour of duty, you came back to the States, you enrolled in a ministry school program and worked at a high school in Inglewood. I can't think of a bigger cultural change than Thailand to Inglewood. And for those that don't know Inglewood, <laughs> it's a very blighted part of Chicago, a very high crime and poverty rate. And uh, this is where you had the aha moment. Uh, the idea was born for the Chicago Eco House. So tell us about uh, your experience uh, working in the high school in Inglewood and how that inspired you into action and to be a champion of change. Yeah. So, you know, when I was in ministry school, I started uh, volunteering at Team Inglewood High School in Inglewood on the south side of Chicago. And, you know, this was like really my first time, you know, coming face to face with like urban black poverty. Um, so, you know, like as I'm tutoring, you know, I'm like getting to, I'm building relationships with these students. I'm getting to know some of their families. I'm hearing their stories. Um, and it really just convicted my heart because, you know, like is like the way the, you know, way a lot of my students were living and growing up, like it was like the antithesis of the way I grew up, right? So it really gave me a, a you know, just like it really humbled me. It just gave me like a great appreciation, not only for what I had, but like what I also could give, right? Um, and, you know, the, one of the common themes you know, that I was hearing was like, hey, you know, hey, uh, Mr. Keelan, the thing that we really want is just, you know, an opportunity to prove ourselves, an opportunity to, you know, show that we belong, to show that we have value, right? Um, and, you know, like, like, it's not that, like, people really weren't, like, seeking handouts or, you know, being like, hey, well, what can I get from you kind of thing? It was like, no, like, we just want an opportunity to show that we can contribute to society as well, right? Um, and that really just affected me. So, uh, you know, that, you know, that was kind of like my aha moment, so to speak, where, you know, I sort of realized, well, wait a minute, well, maybe, you know, there's something I could do about this, you know, given my background. Um, and when we started the Chicago Eagle House, it's pretty much a way to blend, you know, my interests as well as expertise in uh, community organizing, as well as, you know, sustainable uh, environmental business. Um, so, you know, we basically wanted to do something that would create these economic opportunities for the youth on the South side of Chicago to, you know, really showcase, you know, what they can do, but also doing it in a way that worked with mother nature that, you know, helped to, uh, you know, sort of restore that relationship between, you know, the people in our community, as well as the environment, um, cause it doesn't really make sense to, you know, like help people, uh, you know, try to climb the economic ladder, but you're doing it in a way that's, you know, destroying the environment that they live in. So, um, you know, that's really the uh, foundation of the Chicago Eco House when we started it. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Chicago Eco House programs that you've developed to alleviate poverty, but also uh, I left a little bit about there somewhere you met a, a, a nice young lady and married her and <laughs> made her both your work partner. So talk, you got to, can't leave that part out either. <laughs> 
Yes, yes. Yeah, Hannah would, uh, uh, you know, slap me if I forgot to mention it. So, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, Hannah, um, so I actually met Hannah, you know, when, uh, uh, you know, so she was she was doing a lot of uh, work in the west side of Chicago in East Garfield Park. Um, I was doing work in Inglewood on the south side. And we actually had a mutual friend uh, who set us up on a blind date because, you know, that was a thing we had in common was our, you know, passion for the uh, for the hood. Um, and, you know, like we both basically, uh, hit it off and, um, you know, she's based, she's a co-founder of Chicago Equal House. She helped me to get it started, you know, and build it to what it is today. I mean, she's been, you know, our, our, our relationship marriage has largely been defined by, you know, our passion for, you know, uh, building sustainable solutions in, uh, you know, in the inner city and really trying to transform it. Um, so yeah, she is, uh. You know, there will be no Chicago Week House without her. So, yes, definitely she gets, uh, you know, most, if not all, the credit for the work that we do. Well, you have two programs, the Solar Powered Flower Farm and the Southside Bloom. So let's talk about the the Solar Powered Flower Farm first. That's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, our so one of the things that makes us unique, well, let me back up. So when we actually started, we were trying to find a uh, cash crop that, you know, we felt like that would not only create jobs and could build a business, but, you know, could open up the door for a new industry. Because when you look at, you know, the inner city and you look at the hood, one of the things that we do not have is an anchor industry, right? Like when you think of like Napa Valley, you think of wine and the vineyards. When you think of like Silicon Valley, you think of tech. But in the hood, we really don't have like, you know, an industry that, you know, uh, uh, you know really supports our economic base. So, um, you know, at first we looked at doing food, but the reason why we, uh, you know, stopped and uh, pivoted to flowers was because, you know, trying to do food in the city, you know, one, you have to adhere to like USDA regulations, which is, uh, you know, drives up your costs. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's very burdensome, particularly when, you know, like you're in our, in our situation, you, we, you know, we only had like $150 donation. That's what we were working with. Um, so we had to be very creative. Um, the other thing is there's a lot of competition, right? You know, like uh, you're going to be, you know, dealing with big ag. Um, so, you know, most people who are growing food in the city of Chicago can only really sell either direct to consumer through CSAs or, uh, you know, sell to like restaurants and, you know, more niche markets. Um, but with flowers, we didn't, you know, we, we didn't have to deal with any of those issues. So, you know, we, you know, there's, there's uh, really no competition on the growing side. Um, as well as, you know, we don't have to deal with like USDA regulations. So that means we can use rainwater um, for irrigation, um, which then opened up the door for us to use solar to power like our pumps uh, on our farms for to, you know, to distribute the rainwater that we were collecting. So um, on the farm side with our program, uh, basically what we'll do is we'll take over vacant lots. And, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, Chicago has anywhere from 30 to 40,000 vacant lots predominantly on the south and west sides of the city. Um, so we'll take over a vacant lot, we'll convert it into a solar power flower farm, which basically means, you know, we will bring in compost, we'll set up beds, we'll plant flowers, uh, we'll have our, uh, our IBC totes um, that we will uh, connect to a uh, downspout to collect rainwater off the you know adjacent building. Um, and then we'll set up our shed, put solar panels that are then connected to a battery bank inside the shed. And the batteries are just car batteries, nothing fancy. Um, and, you know, we're good to go. So, you know, we're, we're able to uh, quickly 
turn a you know blighted space into a productive agricultural asset. Um, and then we bring in you know at-risk youth. So we do have partnerships with uh, you know the Cook County Jail, um, as well as a lot of you know nonprofits that work with at-risk youth, a lot of high schools. Um, and the youth will come, we'll train them in you know, agriculture and floriculture and how to be a flower farmer. Um, and, you know, they're making like $15, $16 an hour, wow. you know, working for us. So, um, you know, now they have a job, but like the cool thing is, you know, they connect their economic welfare directly to the stewardship of the land that they're working on, right? Um, which in an urban environment is a big deal, you know, because most people are, you know, very disconnected from the land. Um, but like in this case, it's reestablishing that connection in a very real way. And that's one of the things we stress in our farm program is like, hey, look, at like you have this job, you're making good money, um, you know, for like a young adult, for a teenager. And it's because you're working with Mother Nature, you know, and she's yielding her produce. She's yielding her abundance. That's allowing you to be able to like live a better life. So, you know, essentially, if you basically just take care of her, you take care of mother nature, she'll take care of you. Um, and that's one of the things that, you know, our youth are seeing in a very real and tangible way. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, you talked about raised beds, why that's important in the city is a lot of that ground's contaminated. So you want right. to raise it off the, uh, the natural ground and put uh, some type of a clean uh, substrate in there to grow your flowers. One of the uh, importance of flower delivery is that you have to keep those uh, flowers at a, a cool temperature, else they, they, they're very perishable. I assume that the, that area is also underserved, that there's not a lot of uh, flower producers. Talk a little bit about the market and how you yep. distribute the flowers. Yeah, so in the United States, about 80% of the flowers that we get uh, actually come from overseas with two thirds of those coming from Central and South America. Um, so, you know, just nationally speaking, uh, the flower grower market is wide open. Um, you know, cause when you think about food, uh, you know, there's all sorts of big ag companies that you'll be dealing with, right? Whether it's Dole, ConAgra, uh, Tyson, right? But when flower, with flowers, there is no like major, uh, you know, floral uh, industry or, you know, competitor. So, um, on the growing side, you know, like that, that's great because like we're in the market where people are buying the flowers, um, you know, so since we're able to grow the flowers here, it makes it a lot easier from a delivery standpoint. Um, and we do do our own delivery. So we're a vertically integrated operation. Um, yeah. So it also helps us to make, to keep the flowers fresher. Um, and, you know, so one of the things too, that I want to note is like, we don't use any, you know, herbicides, pesticides, you know, chemical or synthetic fertilizers. We don't use any of that stuff, right? Um, and it's a large reason why we're able to do that is because we're growing in the market. We're growing in a hyper-local fashion. Because um, when you look at, uh, you know, the, the conventional floral industry, you know, they're like just spraying their flowers with herbicides and fungicides and, you know, uh, all these chemicals because they need to uh, be able to artificially extend the shelf life of, you know, the flowers, right? Because, you know, flowers obviously are very very fragile, they're a perishable product. Um, but with us, you know, we harvest our flowers, we'll make the bouquet and then get it out to the customer. So from the time that it's, you know, harvest on the farm to the time it's on someone's table, it can be as little as like one to two days, right? Um, so yes, like being able to grow in the market, you know, is a huge advantage uh, that allows us to be able to, uh, you know, grow sustainably. 
So let's talk a little bit about your organization. Um, how are you? Are you a nonprofit? Yes, we are. And how are you funded? Yeah, so we're funded through uh, grants, donations, our earned revenue through sales. We do events. We do retail bouquets. So, yeah, we have a pretty diverse uh, uh, funding stream model. And what's your biggest challenge? Uh, you mean uh, operationally, financially? Uh, operationally, yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I would say, like, our biggest challenge today is really managing growth. Because uh, there's a, we definitely have a lot of interest, uh, not just here in Chicago, but, you know, like Detroit, Milwaukee, Gary, Indiana, people want to partner with us and want to expand those partnerships. Um, so, you know, today, like our biggest challenge is, you know, figuring out how we can really grow, be able to get into more communities um, without, you know, uh, you know, basically compromising our values, compromising, you know, our farm and flower shop standards. Uh, you know, as we move forward. So tell me, what in your day brings a big smile to your face? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, you know what, like the the favorite part of my day is really when I see uh, new youth who come into our shop um, and just see like that, like glow on their face. Because, you know, so like, yeah, think about it from like their perspective, right? You know, like if you're you're in a neighborhood where there aren't a lot of after-school programs, not a lot of options, not a lot of opportunities. Go to a school that's underfunded, um, you know, where there's a lot of, uh, you know, violence and that kind of deal. You may go, you know, at home. It may You may be dealing with all sorts of trauma. Um, and then all of a sudden you come into this place, you know, that's in your community um, and there's flowers. It smells like, you know, you're you're on a tropical island, you know, and it, it like you just to see that glow. Uh, on their face where they come in, they're like, wait, like, this is for me? Like, you know, this, you know, this is like set up for me. I mean, that's my favorite part. You know, when you sort of see a kid and now it gives them hope, right? It gives them hope that they can be a part of, you know, not just changing their lives and their family's lives, but changing their community's life. Um, so yeah, like that, that never gets old. Well, with the Main Street media serving up a buffet of bad news each day, it's it's refreshing to hear how a champion of change is making uh, your circle of influence a better place to live. And so thank you very much for joining us on Green Sense Show and sharing your story. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Robert. Appreciate it. My guest this week was Kulin Blackwell, president and founder of the Chicago Eco House, explaining how he's using sustainability to alleviate poverty. Visit the GreenSenseShow.com website to learn more about how you can sponsor our program. I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening to GreenSense and check out the GreenSense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 FM, WBBM, Chicago. GreenSense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit C-E-A-T-E-C-H-N dot com to learn more.